Welcome to the podcast version of Police Science Doctor, the online resource bridging the gap between research and investigative practice. For police personnel who go the extra mile. For academics who want to connect better with investigative practitioners. On YouTube and on policesciencedoctor.com. Hello, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, everyone. This is Suzanne Knabenikol from Police Science Doctor. You're joining me here on a live interview with Dr. Matt Blunt. Let me just show you who that is. And he's waiting backstage. He'll be speaking to us very soon. We're going to talk about how to reduce crime by 40% um, using hotspots patrols. It's some recent research that he published. I have just spoken to him and told him that I'm feeling a little bit rusty doing these live interviews. I haven't done one for a while. If anyone is online who's maybe seen the last one, can you please remind me, just comment where you are. This is being streamed to Twitter, uh, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Just uh, put in the comments, please, which one was my last interview. And even if you haven't watched any interviews here before, just pop into the comments um, who you are, where you work, what kind of area you work in, and which country, because I found that there's usually some really good networking going on in the comments section. So this is an opportunity for you to meet, meet like-minded people in the comments section and ask questions and get them answered. So um, I'll just briefly introduce Matt. I haven't actually got any... So that's the first thing I forgot to have like a proper bio in front of me, but I'll tell you what I know. So I, I have known Matt for a while. We used to work together at Suffolk Police. We then used to work together at the Cambridge Centre for Evidence-Based Policing. His background is in crime analysis and he's done a lot of research on domestic abuse. And that was the last interview I did with him on this um, show. It's on, on the Police Science Doctor channel. And uh, obviously we're talking about something different today. Um, based on the research that he's published more recently. He's already associate professor at Cambridge University, so obviously very prestigious at that. And um, if everybody's ready, let's just see if he's ready as well. And welcome to the interview, Matt. How are you doing? Hi, Susanna. I'm okay, thank you. How are you? Good, thank you. Well, thank you for joining us today. So many people, maybe just one or two, may not have seen our last interview together. So for those who don't know you, who are you and why might people know you? Uh, it's always strange to say, why might people know you? Um, I'm Dr. Matt Bland. Um, as you, you've already said, I, I work for the Institute of Criminology at the University of Cambridge. Um, you may, if you're into evidence-based policing and you do the, the rounds of these kind of things, then you may, have, you may have come across me at the Cambridge Conference or talking on analyst training courses, or you might be one of the half a dozen people who's read something that I've written. Um, so I've, uh, in the last three or so years since I've been um, actively publishing, I've written three books on various topics uh, around evidence-based policing um, and a number of papers in peer-reviewed journals, of which the paper we're going to talk about today is, is one of them. I have various other hats and gigs that I, I, I sort of um, pursue. So I'm the independent chair for the Home Office's technical uh, reference group, group uh, looking at reviewing the police funding formula. I'm the uh, trial director for uh, the National Trial of Domestic Abuse Polygraph um, tests with um, high-risk domestic abuse offenders. And uh, I'm a uh, board member of the American Society of Criminology's uh, Academy for Experiment Experimental Criminology. Right. So I didn't even know of these hats. I did think you were going to tell us that you're going to the um, Lederhosen infested beer drinking festival in weekend in, in Germany next weekend, which is what you told me earlier. And you yes, promised to put up some pictures of yourself in Lederhosen for the Oktoberfest. <laughs> no. Okay. Well, lots of more professional hats that um, that I wasn't aware of. So obviously, well done for that. We've got um, Marla Friedman, police psychologist from Illinois in America watching. She's a good friend of mine. Hello, Marla. Please, yes, do introduce yourself in the comment section. And also, if you've got a question that you would like me to put to Matt, please start your comment with a Q, a couple of Q, and then I can ask him the question. Um, Matt, you mentioned evidence-based policing. That's um, very, very much a growing um, practice. Can you please maybe give a short definition of what it is? Because most people think, think of the term evidence in the context of policing when, you know, sort of about DNA and forensics, but we're talking about something different here. What is it? Yeah, so uh, it's the application of scientific uh, inquiry methods. Very much, you know, police science, as you is in your, your banner, is, is the same domain as evidence-based policing, um, by and large. It's about uh, 
why did police do what they do in both terms of tactics and strategy um, and, and making sure that that's got a firm basis in evidence in the sense that, you know, empirical research is evidence rather than evidence, as you say, you would submit before a court. It's, it's very different in that, that respect. The, the word evidence, the term evidence in evidence-based policing is it comes from evidence-based medicine or, or evidence-based education or evidence-based management, um, which are other disciplines that, that have the same core philosophies of basing practice in good science and good scientific method. Uh, and it's it's no more complex than that. Mm-hmm. Okay. The and um you we we're also very you and I are both very much involved um with evidence-based practice and you know you obviously um still working I, I assume with the Cambridge Center of Evidence-Based Policing and I support the societies of evidence-based policing. We've got the big global conference coming up um in on the 12th of October actually. So there's there's a lot going on and there's a lot of collaboration going on online and there's Actually, the English-speaking countries so far have been the forerunners in this. So this is something that's very up and coming. Anyone who wants to work in policing should really keep an eye on what's going on with evidence-based policing because that is the way to go. Um, and yeah, so we're we're both quite quite embedded in that process. But I recommend that everybody sort of get involved in some way. Um, so tell us about the the research that you did, please. Was it in Bedfordshire where you had the forty percent crime reduction? How how does that work? It sounds it sounds fantastic. Anyone you know maybe just tuning in, we're talking about how to reduce crime by forty percent, and Matt is going to tell us how to do that now. <laughs> well, it's, look, so there's some there's some caveats that you need to put around that. Okay, it's not not we're not talking about all crime. Um, this was a, a project looking at how to reduce a particular type of street violence and robbery. Um, so very, you know, very serious end of the scale uh, and a big priority for the government in the in the UK. Um, it's also the 40% reduction is in the severity of the crime rather than the numbers of crimes. So the numbers of crimes that were reduced in this, this randomised control trial were about 25%. So it's still pretty substantial in the, in the grand scheme of things. And that, you know, is sort of the first hook whenever you're sort of talking about this, this trial uh it, it is 15 minutes per day of intervention um manifesting itself in a 25 percent reduction in street violence you're quite right Suzanne that's that's something which that piques people's interest um this is this is kind of you know quite it's useful that we start with the definition of evidence-based policing because this is evidence-based policing in action really um at the toward the top of the pyramid of evidence it is sort of highly internally valid uh, causal designs. So what I mean by that is how can you put in place an evaluation of something that you're doing and be sure that when you draw inferences at the end of that evaluation that you are, um, you've got confidence, a high level of confidence that the thing you changed is responsible for the outcomes that you, you saw. And it's common, uh, a common strand of research methodology that the randomized experiments are up there. I'm not going to say the trope gold standard, but they are up there with uh, the highest quality of designs if executed correctly. That's the big. That's the big if. You can't can't just put a randomized experiment into the field and every, assume everything's going to be okay. Um, and I can talk a bit about. Um, how everything wasn't okay through the through the application of this this study. Uh, the, the 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 intervention that we were looking at was the presence of a, a uniform police officer um, walking around a, a location which was mapped out. The officers had those locations for fifteen minutes in a, a day, um, and compared to uh, what happened in those same areas on different days when the officers didn't walk around. So we had a number of areas um, across Bedfordshire, which, um, as you you name check, is a county in the um, east of England. Um, It has uh, quite a big urban conurbation, which is almost like a borough of London, just outside the the sort of um, London area. And then it has a number of other smaller sort of market type towns, but it has got, has been identified as one of the top, 17 police agencies in the UK for levels of knife injury at the time that we we ran this experiment. And the government funded this piece of work. Um, So Bedfordshire were looking around for, you know, what 
what tactics and uh, can we employ that are going to give us the best returns in terms of addressing this this violent crime problem and that's where evidence-based policing comes in um, because the body of evidence around place-based strategies and about dealing with uh, violent crime in particular points towards uh, hot, what they call hotspot patrolling as being uh, probably the most consistent uh, intervention that will yield results. There have been experiments all over the world in uh, do visible patrols deter people from committing crime on the street? And... Um, that evidence, you know, it has a varying different degrees of, uh, yes, look, this reduces crime, but by how much? Um, the overall sort of direction of travel is is fairly moderate. If you look at the systematic review that Anthony Braga out in the state and colleagues out in the states conducted, but it's pretty consistent in saying if you if you do these studies, then the chances are you will um, you will have a positive effect on reducing violent crime. I can see there's a question which says, is this predictive policing? No, it's not. It's nothing to do with PredPol. Um, what we wanted to test in Bedfordshire, what Bedfordshire particularly wanted to test, was this kind of emerging theme that, that started in Perth, in Western Australia, in about 2019, uh, with another, you know, a couple of the other um, speakers at the Global Evidence-Based Policing Conference, Jeff Barnes and Simon Williams, who were working out there at that time, uh, we're, we're looking at can we how long can we actually maintain this deterrent effect for um, in particular areas. So they took Perth, they cut it up into city blocks, and then they shuffled those city blocks so that sometimes um, a city block would receive a, a patrol for uh, a short period of time, and then on other days it wouldn't receive the patrol. And because they did that randomly, you'd have city blocks that were getting a patrol one, two, three, four days in a row, and you'd have others that just by dint of chance would not be getting them one, two, three, four days in a row. And the outcome of their um, uh, experiment was they found that you could send a patrol in and the, the deterrent effects, the suppressing effect on crime rates actually lasted for about four days um, and then crime would start to uh, seep, seep back up. Now, that is quite an attractive variation of hotspot policing because from a resource point of view, you're looking at it thinking, okay, well, I can get more efficiency from my deployment of resources here if I can have that four-day window where I don't need to deploy officers to go and do these proactive patrols, even though they're, they're a short period of time. So the, the purpose of the Bedfordshire experiment was to replicate this method seen in Perth and um, see if that effect was also present in Bedfordshire and they could deploy on, a, on an ongoing basis uh, that sort of one-on, four-off strategy. Um, as it turns out, and this is the sort of case for replication in science and why you can't, in evidence-based policing or any, any evidence-based anything, necessarily pick up one study and drop it in somewhere else and expect to get the same results. What we saw in Bedfordshire was actually, it was the opposite. We needed to have a consistent approach um, where officers were going into areas one, two, three days consecutively to get the optimal results on that third and fourth day. There was, there was very, very low low crime uh, when those, those strategies played out. There are some notable differences, though. Perth and Bedfordshire are very different places. Um, Perth is a big city. Bedfordshire is, is a much larger um, area in, when you think about geographic scope. And the hotspots that we identified for officers to patrol were also um, quite large compared to, to uh, Perth. So while Perth was looking at more of a city block type scenario, about 200 metres by 200 metres, in Bedfordshire, we're talking about much larger areas where the officers couldn't physically be present in all of them. So they were taking using their professional judgment to walk around within the confines of the hotspot um, and go effectively follow their nose, um, but make sure they're seen, make sure they're engaging with um, with the community, and that's why we say fifteen minutes a day, which is which is a translation of what the officers were doing. Although sometimes they were doing more, and sometimes they were doing less. Um, I've got a number of questions. So obviously, we talk. You you said in the beginning that this is um, not an overall crime reduction of all types, but specifically street robbery. Correct. 
Uh, yeah, street violence and robbery. Yeah, violence um, and robbery. And you also said it's the severity that actually went down rather than the crime count. No, they both went down, but by different oh. amounts. So, um, the um, the volume of crime went down by about a quarter, twenty five percent, and the severity of those crimes, as we measure them using a, a crime harm index, went down by forty percent. Okay, can you just please explain briefly to everyone who's not familiar with crime harm versus crime count what the difference is and why it why it's actually really important? Yeah, of course. Um, so that the in in crime analysis um, and, and criminology, um, there is a, a sort of prevailing view that not all crimes are the same. It's not particularly controversial when you you take it in that those terms. A homicide is more severe than um, the theft. Of, of a uh, food item from a shop, for example. Uh, those are obviously extremes, but then there are varying degrees within there um, that you might apply. You might say a rape offence is uh, more severe than um, you know, a minor common assault, for example. The question is, how do you weight those crimes um, separately and then, and then have some sort of valid instrument for measuring them? And various scholars around the world have come up with um, different instruments for doing this. The one that we use on this study is unashamedly and quite logically the Cambridge version, which weights different crime types by the minimum level of sentence that uh, an offender could get at court. Um, so these are the guidelines given to judges for when they make their sentencing decisions. So it, the, the actual weighting is expressed in number of days that a person would go to uh, go to jail for the very lowest possible level, uh, which makes it consistent across the board and takes out any aggravating factors which would be uh, individualised to unique offenders. At one end of the scale, you have a, a homicide, which would be up around 5,600 days um, for um, for one offence. Robbery would be something like 365 days by comparison. So big, uh, a big spectrum across the board. And it's by taking a mean of those from the areas on the days that we did the patrols, comparing it to those when we didn't do the patrols, that's where you get the 40% difference. When the patrols were happening, the actual count of crimes was 26% lower, which is great news. But the severity of those crimes using that metric was 40% lower. So the message, um, the message there is this is this is moving the needle in the right direction, but it, it's also moving harm reduction to a greater extent than it's re- reducing crime based on count alone. Yeah. And once you understand that distinction between crime harm and crime count, you realise that actually it is harm that we need to look at reducing a lot more than crime count. Um, you, you briefly explained to um, Lee Oakley was asking on in, in um, on LinkedIn if this is predictive policing. You said it isn't. Again, can you give a quick, quick definition of what predictive policing is and why hotspots patrolling is not predictive policing? Um, so... Uh... Hotspot policing could be predictive policing. It's just not in this this respect. Um, that, and I'm obviously interpreting what Lee means by predictive policing. So, if I use the common um, the common story of Predpol, the algorithm which divides uh, places up into blocks and then uh, applies its algorithm to predict where the next crimes will happen, and the idea is that. Um, Officers are then deployed on that basis to go to those locations dynamically and prevent those crimes from happening. And that's kind of the general philosophy of predictive policing. Can you use the data to predict where we need to be? Um, We started off looking at whether we might have a system like that in this experiment, um, just as the overall overall piece of work. But um, what we found quite conclusively was the most violent places in this jurisdiction don't really change. They're, they're, they're quite chronic um, when you take them over a course of months. So that really helped with the research design because what we've used here is what we call a crossover design, in which case you, you, you're applying your intervention um, and your control to the same unit. So, that you know, we divide, say, Luton, um, this, this town which is just outside London, up into uh, its its um, different jurisdictions, and then we will 
be sending patrols in on some days, measuring what happens, and not sending them in on other days. And the comparison then is between the days when we did the patrols and the days when we didn't. So all the environmental factors in that jurisdiction are constant across across the two days. So you can can rule all of those out as potential other explanations. Um, we therefore didn't need to predict where violence was because it, it was it was highly predictable in in sense that it the best chances of it of, of finding violent crimes were always in the same locations. So in in that respect, it's not a dynamic model in the way that predpol or equivalents would would um, would generate. Could you briefly explain as well what exactly a hotspot is when it comes to you know in our context policing and um, patrolling? I mean, it can be dozens of things in in terms of how you define it, but they always come down to the same thing. It's where most crimes are happening. <clears throat> so you face questions around how big should the hotspot be, what shape should it be, should you know how does it sort of cross different, you know, does it cross a road, for example, things like that. Those are all technical decisions that analysts will need to make when they're when they're doing this kind of work. Um, but you know, this is, these have sort of been around in scientific literature now for I think sort of 1987, uh, when when sort of Larry Sherman uh, and others started their sort of Minneapolis experiment, started looking at this concentration of crime, which uh, David Weisberg calls the law of concentration, is very well established. Um, the, the crime generally concentrates into a few. Uh, locations, also between a few people, you know, a small segment of the population, and you know that that's where this type of experiment is is really founded. And hotspot policing as a strategy is is really based on these principles that you will get the best rewards for your resource investment, if I can put it in those sort of crude economic terms, uh, if you target the problems in those areas um and and the harm metric as you as you allude to Suzanne gives you a slightly different perspective on that because it's not just about the numbers of crimes it, it's also about the the weighting of those crimes too yeah so a hotspot is um both geographical and also temporal so for example um places that are part of the nighttime economy pubs bars um and these these kind of things they are they are probably a hotspot for certain kinds of crime public disorder drunkenness but only at certain times so you can't well you can but you you wouldn't get much from doing a hotspots patrol on a tuesday morning outside a nightclub because there's there's no one you know pouring out of there but you you could have some benefit on a friday or saturday night for example yes, uh, we've, we've got another question from marla here how do you manage scheduling this is outstanding research most officers here work 10 or 12 hour shifts some with no time off for seven eight nine or more days off how does it work yeah. um with <laughs> with a lot of effort um scheduling was a problem um and I think it probably comes on to Lee's Lee's point below um, Marla's there. So it, it, we we had officers uh, take out GPS trackers in this experiment um, because we wanted to know that they were going into the hotspots as we assigned them, um, and we could sort of monitor live time where they were. Though we didn't do that; it was all done in in retrospect. Um, the common challenge we had throughout this experiment and the follow-up one that we actually did uh, last year um, was officer availability to go and do those those patrols. Um, there is there is, and I, I think there will forever be um, a priority for the radio um, when there is a when there is an urgent call comes in, officers will go, and and that's how it should be, um, and that with the number of officers that are often available presents a challenge so you know it's a real challenge for evaluators to have to deal with let alone how practitioners have to deal with that in the real world um, we came up with various different strategies from ranging from daily routine you know, daily oversight by commanding officers who would be you know actively encouraging if i can put it like that um, officers to to go out and do that and then notify them when they've done it um, they looked at um, isolating resources so they could uh, provide a sort of dedicated pool 
um, to go out and do it. And actually that that had quite a, a good level of uptake because those were just officers just assigned to go and do this work. There is um there is a sustainable issue there though, because there's always demands for officers and dedicated teams like that. And I think with anything around crime prevention, um, and again, um, you know, Lee's t- hitting the nail on the head, I think. There is a view that if you are out doing a, a foot patrol, you're doing some crime prevention work, that that's not equal to reactive work, which which should take a higher priority because there's always so much to be done. And we, there's a long-term cultural challenge in this this area, I think, to try to shift the balance so that that kind of proactive foot patrol it is seen as actually reducing demand further down the line because because you're going to have 25% fewer violent crimes if that result extrapolates out then there'll be 25% fewer investigations further down the line so if you sustain that strategy for long enough you would hope to see some easing of that that resource demand but I'm straying into unicorn thinking territory here okay that there's no guarantee that it will sustain there's no guarantee you could sustain this for long enough to actually feel that that um, that relief in demand and these are the, just the challenges that police decision makers have to make. So there's nothing nothing unusual there. They're just this is just another piece of the jigsaw that they have to to wrestle with. This is a massive topic, isn't it? I mean, Lee is talking about how they try to use predictive policing in Kent police here in the southeast of England, and they felt it failed. I, I think a perpetual problem with policing is one, it's very slow to get anyone to agree to actually do something radical, to do, to try and do something different because everybody's so overstretched with all the reactive stuff because we're not doing enough prevention. That's why there's so many, so many things we need to react to. We need to, you know, go to all the calls that come in. And that is a big problem because we need to somehow get enough officers involved and enough members of staff involved to actually doing predictive work so that in the longer run or even in the medium, medium term, we can reduce all the calls that come in. But how do you balance that when you have very stretched resources? So it's very difficult to convince police leaders to try out something different. And then I think there's also a massive issue with implementation. And I know that, you know, from, to, from speaking to some of the academics and practitioners who have managed to run um you know, large research projects like you have, there is an issue with implementation. You know, officers might be told to go to certain areas, and but they don't. And um, they, they're not checking in or they're not doing this and not doing that. They're doing things differently. So implementation is a very, very big problem. And some, somebody might have a great idea. And even if it does get authorized, if the implementation is not sawn through, if you don't see the implementation through properly, then it may well look like the thing didn't work, but actually it would have done if, if it had been done properly. But that's very, very difficult to achieve sometimes. And how, Matt, how do you think the culture is sort of preventing good change and preventing good initiatives in this context? Um, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not totally convinced there's a, a, a pervasive cultural problem uh, that, that's the obstacle. I think it's more an issue of competing demands and priorities. It's difficult as a, as a researcher. The research is your top priority. You know, it's what you're what you're there to do. But um, you know, we have to acknowledge that operational police officers and and support staff have got inboxes which are just you know overflowing, and it's one more thing they have to do. Um, so I, I I completely sympathise with that position. Um, I think, you know, what levers you can pull are um, more strategic, potentially, in the first instance. It's around how do you um, channel um, special funding towards um, initiatives and ensure they're evaluated to high standards so you can understand the the outcomes? Um, How can you um, make sure that evidence-based practices are are seen through and and forces are actively encouraged to to do them. Um, And there is some progress being made in both those respects, I think. Um, You've got, for example, latest round of Home Office grip funding has come. uh, This is the, uh, this is sorry for international uh, viewers. It's the UK government's uh, funding for violent crime reduction is now being allocated 
with a provision to spend a certain percentage of it on understanding the outcomes of of the work that's gone on. Now, it doesn't necessarily solve the immediate problem of competing demands, but it, you know, what gets measured gets done in policing. And once you start measuring, well, how did you spend the 10% of the the budget or the 15% of the budget in terms of evaluation, you can then start to see tangible, uh, you know, tangible outputs, which will contribute back into the evidence base. The other side is then how, you know, how, what oversight is there for your uh, policing profession around what they're doing? You know, how are they being inspected and monitored? And how is that uh, inspection regi- regime connecting with evidence that, that's out there? That That is a plate of spaghetti. That's really difficult, particularly in places like the US, where there's tens of thousands of agencies and no singular oversight body. Um it's hard when there's only one oversight body in a country, um, and some of that's to do with the complexity of the evidence base itself. So, I, I mean, the way to sort of think about all of this is you know, baby steps, and, and you know, this is part of a, a journey. If you look at evidence-based medicine, which is, has been around for a lot longer than evidence-based policing, you know, that's not problem-free either, um, and and they're more than a hundred years ahead. So. It's easy, I think, for the research community to be frustrated by some of some of those things, but it's just real life. It's how how practice works in in this area, and it's just a something we'll have to adapt to. So, speaking of baby steps, if if somebody's watching this somewhere in the world and they work in, in a police force or police department, and they think, okay, I think I'd, it would be great if we could try that here. Um, but they and their supervisors maybe don't know much about implementing any new tactics or research designs or evidence-based policing. How would you suggest in very simple and clear terms how they should go about it? What what can they do with what they've got available? I, I think there's always, um, I, I place quite a high priority on knowing your, and this is a terrible management speak term, the right stakeholders in their organizations who are going to pull the levers or be the enablers to getting evidence-based practices to work because you could go away and you could read the articles and you could come up with a a lovely plan for developing some some form of evidence-based intervention but if you can't um, understand the context you're operating in or you can't win the hearts and minds of the people you're going to record and this is a common uh theme for um, particularly back office staff, police staff, uh, crime analysts, they aren't necessarily in control of the resources that will need to go uh, out and play ball to put implementation, put interventions into the field. So there's only one way around that, and that's to collaborate with those people. Um, you, you've, I think, you know, the evidence-based policing community is is a yeah, big and growing one. Um you happy with the curtains? Yes, I was just too much coming from the side. So I didn't mean to distract you. <laughs> um, so it's a big and growing one. There's loads of people out there, and there's probably people in individual organisations who are into this stuff or have started to become aware of this stuff because it's just becoming a more more and more common part of the, the conversation. Um, and and I think you know you've got to. You've got to look, first of all, you've got to look to understand the evidence base. If you're if you're sort of tuning into this thinking, look, I can go and do patrols in my jurisdiction, which is nothing like Bedfordshire, and I'm going to get the same result, that's, that's probably not going to happen. So you need to understand how you can interpret the evidence that's out there in the first place, and then you need to be able to understand what sort of conversations you need to have in, in your own organisation to get to a point where you can try something and then then it's about learning from what you're trying and you know it's, it's a cycle that you have to go round and round with um not easy not easy um there there are quite a bit quite a few resources obviously online uh, the, the college of policing is has the um, in the uk has the what works center which is basically a list where you can look up projects that have been tried and tested in law enforcement that's what evidence-based policing is about something that has been tried and tested um and they they're listing initiatives and practices that have been tried and tested and what the outcomes were and if they actually are shown to work or not you can google evidence-based policing and lots and lots of many different resources will come up there's videos i've, I've made a video um, with several videos on evidence-based policing interviewed with people on evidence-based policing i've got a free mini course on evidence-based policing so if you if you do have an interest in that there are lots of resources you can take advantage of and 
and often um people like like Matt here for example are are quite are, are wanting to work with police forces so you know if if you are aware of any academics in in your area wherever your police forces you know do perhaps get in contact with them personally i think that it would be great if every police department every police every police force had some kind of researcher in there i mean we have we have researchers people called researchers but i was i was a, my first job in suffolk police for example was as a researcher and it's basically just just looking at systems and putting information together for people to then do something with so that's that's different what i'm talking about is somebody who has an understanding of how projects should be run how evaluations should be run has the has some kind of clout in in that organization to say okay look we're, imp- we're going to implement a trial speaking to the operational decision makers we need to do some research on this how do we structure this best? This is how we're going to set it up. This is how we're going to implement it. This is why we're doing it. There's evidence base here, an evidence base here, or we need to contribute to the evidence base. This is how we're going to evaluate. This is how we're going to check if everything works. I also think that every police force should have an investigative psychologist in it. Um, but, you know, so if anyone wants to um, wants to implement that, that would be great. I think it would be very beneficial for most police departments. I know that some police departments in America have a handful of people, so 10 maybe 10 offices that might not be enough perhaps to warrant all of that but then maybe somebody in the region has maybe can have access to other regional experimenters and researchers and people who really want to be embedded in policing and want to get some of this research knowledge in into policing and i think that would possibly help a lot if if that role existed but again somebody needs to make the decision that it's worth in the long term to make this investment in someone is is that something you you think might work matt would it help or not i, I think it's difficult with individuals so i mean the the there's no no doubt that that every law enforcement agency can benefit from having some capacity to understand what it's doing um but i think there can be a there can be a tendency to say it's particularly in small agencies to invest in one two three or small team and um kind of think that's that's the job done um or that that will lead to the job being done and with evidence based practice it's a much uh, more systemic um issue that needs to be addressed around how 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 do we do what we do at all levels um so it, it, it definitely uh the the research capability um is is a key part of the key part of that journey but it it, it can't be the only one i mean research a research team is nothing without data to work with um so you know there's a there's a step even before having research capability um but you know you could have both those those uh, ducks lined up in a row and then if your executive decision making um, functions are not bought into uh, assessing evidence or using evidence as an integral part of the strategy then again it's it's the system will fail so there is a there is a whole system i'm doing full management lingo in this this interview but there is a whole managed whole systems approach that needs to be considered to to doing this in in the right way and that's why i sort of say but you know baby steps you know you've got to you know, do this thing you know, only do this one bite at a time hmm. We've got a question here from Michael, who's watching on YouTube. He's saying, good day, not to stray too far from the area of concern, but do you see this research being applicable within the private security industry where patrols of neighbourhoods and businesses are concerned? Mm, yeah, 100%. Um, and, and there is evidence already out there to say, you know, um, it doesn't have to be police officers who are um, patrolling to have a, a deterrent effect. So, so the mechanism here that we think is at play is deterrence theory um, by having a, a you know a sentinel a guardian um, in in a place where an offender and a, a potential offender and a potential victim are present, you raise the perception of risk to the offender to the point where they are deterred from committing the offence. That absolutely has has been shown to have worked successfully in places like train stations um, with with private security guards rather than than um, uh, sworn officers. Um, it's been shown to work uh, in places not too far from Bedfordshire with um, sort of unique um, role that that we have in the UK. It's called police community support officers who wear a uniform, um, but they have no powers of arrest. They they can't detain you. 
um, it, it is it is this kind of um, guardian looking in, um, which is the the key to making these strategies work. Um, and, and that absolutely in that context absolutely applies to um, the, the private sector. Mm-hmm. We've got a question here from Stanley. He's at a, he's at a military university in Indonesia. Is your research also concerned with how to reduce crime if the police are suspected of being criminals themselves? Is this form of crime covered in your research as well? Not in this paper, um, but I have other research uh, projects ongoing that look at um, police misconduct in in other senses. Um, I mean, there's a recent study um, that came from uh, the States by David Weisberg and his team, which looked at um, how how officers um, deal with people in the community and whether that has an impact on hotspot policing strategy. And it's, you know, generally viewed that if the police are not seen as a legitimate agent of, um, of the state, then they will not be able to influence crime suppression. Um, and, you know, that that's different, obviously. It's contextually different in, in all different nations that... Uh, um, how you know the extent to which that is important in places like the UK, uh, the US, most of Europe, you know, where policing by consent is is you know well established, um, it at the moment is not a critical issue, which is not to say it's not an issue at all. Um, and you can you perhaps can see worrying worrying trends in the sort of uptick in assaults on emergency workers on officers uh, as a symptom of potential problem there um but at the moment uh, it, that that effect doesn't appear to be re- suppressing the deterrent effect that uh, hotspot policing strategies can have broadly can you explain briefly what you what we mean by policing by consent this is a very big um part of uk policing but many other countries will not be familiar with it Yeah, sure. So it's uh, it's effectively the other end of the spectrum to um, sort of paramilitary policing. Um, you know, officers aren't armed, uh, you know, regularly. They are, you know, the, the upholding of the law requires um, the consent of the public to allow police to carry out their duties. In a nutshell, there's far more members of the public than there are police officers. So they have to give a, you know, if it's non, you know, it's non-explicit consent for police officers to say stop and search them in the street or arrest them. Um, and we're talking at a sort of macro scale of consent rather than individual consent levels here. But the key to having that consent you know, on a wide basis is legitimacy. Um, you know, do the public see the police as legitimate agents to carry out the you know intrusive actions that they they often do you know, you know arresting you or searching your house or stopping you stopping your car and and, and asking you to account for yourself um uh, that that's the sort of foundation particularly of british policing where there's there's no uh, no re- routine arming of, of police officers there's i um... So it's it's Monday today. Um, every Tuesday, if for those who know or for those who don't know, I publish three police science snippets. So I go through lots of journal articles um, that are relevant to policing and criminology, and I try to find three that are practical and useful because a lot of research is very very specific or very abstract, and it's just not going to be relevant to many frontline officers. But something that is that I'm sending out tomorrow as my police science snippets is research that found that. If there is um, a police officer involved sh- um, uh, killing of a member of the public, which was seen as controversial, and there were protests after that, and there is external an external investigation going on in that area, the homicides rates uh, homicide rates actually rise because so we know that in terms of police legitimacy, there people behave better if they feel that the police are justified they they break the law less that's one thing so it's safer for everyone but it's also better for policing when there there was a controversial shooting and there's an investigation there were protests people kill each other more so it's not against the police directly but it's against each other because the the trust um in the community breaks down towards the police and also obviously the police are very reliant on the on the members of the community to come forward with information somebody has been killed next door there were shot fi- shots fired here 
and I saw, you know, I saw something and I want to tell you about it. So that that's quite interesting, this double-sided effect that the perceived loss of legitimacy, even if it's temporary, has can have on the public and the police. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, we answered that question. I want to show something. So you, you, you've written, what, three books in, in the three years you've been at Cambridge? Is that right? Yes. Come on, yeah. you can do more than that. Just three books. No, I haven't written a single one, so that's that's still fine. So obviously, tell us about this book, and I'll also post the links into the link into the comments for anyone who's interested in this. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, it's obligatory to hawk some kind of product that speakers have, right? That's I'm I'm permitted to do it. Um, yes, yes. This is uh, this is a book that um, my colleagues Barack and Alex uh, put together um, with me. Uh, it's part of a suite of methodological texts, which I know doesn't sound the most interesting thing in the world, but you can buy this one uh, individually. Um, as Suzanne's put on there, it's it's on um, Amazon and other other places online. It's we, what we're trying to do in this book is explain um, this kind of high tier of research design, where you want to understand the effect that whatever it is you're doing is having on whatever it is you want to impact. So, for example, in this study, you know, we we're putting foot patrols into high crime areas and we're monitoring what happens to, to crime rates. And the way to do that to a sort of high level of integrity is sort of paved with all sorts of intricacies. Um, so uh, this book is about trying to uh, deconstruct the different elements of experimental research designs. It's not just about randomized control trials, but that, that is a big, big part of it. Um, and we also sort of explore other potential methods that you might use if you're you're not able to do a randomized control trial. And there are hundreds of reasons that you might not be able to do one. It need not be the end of your aspirations to come up with some kind of causal inference. So, um, yeah, I thought while we were talking about experiments, it would be a good opportunity to to flag this book up. And uh, it's it, we try to write this as accessibly as possible. It's not a textbook. Um, it's supposed to be an introduction to this type of um, design. So where we, we're using technical terms, we, we take some time to explain those. There are lots of uh, case studies that we, we introduce into this book, which explain different elements of experiments using police trials as a um, as an example point so hopefully it will if you're keen to understand um, and that can be both in terms of carrying out this research yourself or understanding it when others do it um, perhaps this book might be able to help you okay I hope so you mentioned you did mention earlier that um, randomized control trials are not the gold standard now I always tell my stu my, my students they are so do I need to rethink that why are you saying that uh, I, it's a it's a debate that rages, I think, among um, it's not just criminologists, but uh, criminologists do have have the debate. Uh, I think I think it's probably too simplistic to say they are the gold standard, and I think that's why um, I sort of try to move away from it. I mean, if you if you sort of work, um, do any study in this area, or you might have talked about it, Suzanne, in in your snippets around the hierarchy of different research designs so going from sort of observational studies at the base through uh, before and after studies then introducing where you have um, a comparison group but that comparison group might not be a, a precise match for the group where you're trying something as you go higher up that pyramid what what researchers are trying to do is eliminate all the other possible explanations for why the outcome is changing and um, you know as the book explains you know probability theory um, if you randomize enough cases uh, into your intervention and your comparison groups you'll eliminate all of those other potential explanations just by just by virtue of probability but that's a theory right okay so you, there are loads and loads of unobserved things that might make the different might, might make the, your assumptions invalid so um as I sort of alluded to earlier, you could do a randomized control trial and actually it's not very well set up or the execution of it is not not great, even though the design was great. And it doesn't actually give you any strength in your causal inference. That might not necessarily manifest itself in how the statistics are presented, for example. But 
um, that that that's the reason I think for a reservation around saying, look, is this is the the gold standard? Because I think when you call it the gold standard, it, it it sort of people sort of say, well, that's what we should aim for. And you know, again, thinking about pragma, pra, uh, the pragmatism around operating social science in a, a practitioner field, practice field like policing, you can't always. Um, operate the rigor that a randomized control trial requires, where you've got to have really firm grip over what um, people in your experiment are doing. Um, so, don't my my sort of my line on this is don't just despair because you can't do that, or because it's just out of reach. There are other options there which will help move you along this pathway of of understanding what works and what doesn't. That don't have to be a randomized control trial. Yeah, that, that's that's always a danger, isn't it? That just because people working in the police realize they can't run a big randomized controlled help trial with hundreds of data points or hundreds of participants, that doesn't mean that they can't do tests yeah. or they can't do evidence-based policing. And um, it, it's very important to keep it accessible. And that's that's one of the one of the big challenges in policing, I think. You know, empowering individual officers, individual members of staff that you know you can actually do something. You know, just go go and read up about it. Um, Speaking about evidence-based policing, I would like to show this as well. So this is the conference I mentioned earlier. I'm going to put the link into the comments. They don't show up everywhere, but they should show up on hopefully at, at least YouTube and LinkedIn. But just go to global conference, uh, globalebpconference.com. And this is a 24-hour conference starting in New Zealand. New Zealand are very much at the forefront of evidence-based policing. They're doing really well with this. And then the, they're broadcasting live from a TV studio for 12 hours. And then London is broadcasting live from a TV studio for 12 hours. And there's going to be lots of very interesting people presenting there. And um, I'm a media partner for this conference. So I'm, I'm helping them them out in, in sort of getting getting the word out there. And this, it, there's some very good content coming your way. So go to globalebpconference.com and register for that. And um, I hope that you find something um, of, of use in there. Um, Matt, unless um, there, there haven't been any more new questions, is there anything else that you wish I hadn't asked you about um, still, and given you a chance to say that you haven't? Still embarrassed about the leader hosing bit, but no. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair enough. Then um, if you could make one change in policing, what would it be? Oh God, no! You didn't warm me up for that. Um, you said uh, that last time. You should know more, by now. More funding for evaluation. Oh, good, nice one. Okay, well, with those words, thank you very much for the time today, Matt Blunt, Dr. Matt Blunt from Cambridge University. Thank you very much to everyone else, and I'll see you next time. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this content useful. You can get access to each episode's transcript with key learning points, timestamps, and references if you get yourself onto my mailing list. Just go to the main website on policesciencedoctor.com and on the bottom of each page you will find a sign-up form for notifications of new content. Just enter your first name, your preferred email address and the type of organization you work for. You will not get any spam. This is just for me to let you know about new content and for you to get access to all the transcripts.